This morning, we are going to continue our series that we've entitled Family Life. We've been, the last several weeks since Mother's Day, actually the week before Mother's Day, we've been talking about God's plan for the family and, and uh, what that means for us today. And we've talked about a number of different things. We've talked about on Mother's Day, we talked with the ladies and we talked about raising children and champion children last week from uh, the story of David and Goliath. And today we're going to be talking about, now this is, this is, uh, we're doing this this week instead of Father's Day because this one's a, a heavier message, but it's called When Dads Won't Lead. When Dads Won't Lead. And, and we're doing it now instead of Father's Day is because, you know, too many times in the past, we, we, uh, we, uh, on Mother's Day, we extol the virtues of motherhood and say how wonderful and saintly they are. And then Father's Day rolls around and we kind of say, what, you, you a bunch of dirty, rotten pigs? Why don't you get your act together? And we're not, we want Father's Day, Father's Day to be uplifting, encouraging, and we're going to do that. But today we want to talk about something that happens because we live in a world that this is becoming more and more evident. You know, there, if you look at, for example, the prison population, you'll find out that, uh, uh, that there's a, a very, very high percentage of those that have committed crime and, and gone the wrong way who came from a fatherless home or came from a home where the father was, had no, no real presence. And so there is power in fatherhood. And today we're going to talk about uh, the absence of that. You know, th there are times when fathering and, and really parenting in general is it's just such an unmitigated joy. You know, it's such a delight. Every parent here would say that's true. Amen. You have those moments. And, but I also believe that there are times when you have done everything you know to do and you're still faced with that moment of confrontation where one of your children is not only living, is not only living outside of your will, but they're not living in the center of God's will. And the question is, how do you handle that? What do you do then? And I believe that many, many fathers drop the ball at that point by failing to receive the word of God regarding firmness in leadership at the point of a child's sin. And I would like to give you a word of encouragement and exhortation along those lines. In Proverbs 13, there's a verse of scripture that has been misunderstood and misapplied in so many lives. Let's just see if maybe God would have a fresh word for us from it. Proverbs 13, 24 says this, whoever spares the rod hates their children. But the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. Now, now turn over to Proverbs chapter 19, verse 18, and it says this, Discipline your children, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to their death. In other words, if you don't discipline your children, you are eliminating hope from their lives, and ultimately you'll be a party to all of the suffering that they bring upon themselves. So let's just pause for a moment after the reading of the word. Let's just ask God to speak to us. So would you bow your head and pray together with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is an open book for us. And Lord, we, we want to be an open book before you. And God, we, we don't want the, to have the wisdom of man. We, we don't want anything superficial or shallow or emotional only. God, we, we don't want the, the rote repetition of evangelical cliches. Give us, God, the, the, a deep word. Give us something that is practical and down to earth, yet spiritual. Speak to us today, God, in our innermost man. And I, I, I'm believing you for this, God, and we know that only you can do it. And we pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Today we're going to consider three fathers who failed at the point of discipline. They, they were fathers who refused to take the reins of leadership and do what was necessary, though painful, 
in, in, in terms of ministering to their sons, particularly their, their children in general. Turn first to 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're gonna, this is probably the most famous of all the stories we're going to look at, or, or more accurately, maybe the most infamous of all of them, uh, about a father who failed to rush into the gap and do what he knew was right. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, we're going to read verses 12 through 17, then skip down to verse 22, and then verses 27 through 36. But I, I, I know if, 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 that you're, most of you are probably familiar with this passage, but I, I just want to make sure that we have, a, have it clear in our minds. I want to make sure you have the context clear. So we're talking about a man named Eli here, a man who's we're about to read about him. He served as the surrogate father of the prophet Samuel, and Eli was the high priest of Israel. And he had two natural-born sons named Phineas and Hophni. And we're, we're, we're going to read about them now. So let's pick up in verse 12 of 1 Samuel chapter 2. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. What, what a great way to be introduced in the Bible, isn't it? You know, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling, with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it in the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up to the, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Now, I want to pause there before we read it, just to explain so that we can understand this passage. When a person of Israel brought a sacrifice to the temple, the priests would drop the flesh of the, the meat into the cauldron. They would boil it. And then they would skim the fat off the top of the water and burn the fat on the altar. That's what they were supposed to do. That was a part of the offering process. But instead, they dropped it in. And then that what they were doing is they would let the meat finish cooking. And when it was finished, they would reach in with this three-pronged hook and would say, whatever is left in the pot belongs to God, and but whatever the hook catches is for the priest. And so they would pull the boiled meat out for themselves to eat. And in that way, they would steal another man's a sacrifice between the point that it was offered and the point that was actually consumed on the altar. So you understand what I'm saying here. It was sort of like the old story about the backslidden pastor who would take the offering plates every Sunday and, and he would throw the money up in the air and he said, he said uh, whatever stays up in the air is God's and whatever comes to the ground is mine. You know, so that's kind of what was happening here. The problem is these guys weren't joking. They were actually stealing the offerings from the people. Verse 15. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. So they were not only stealing this, his sacrifice, but they were asking people to give some of the extra meat, which they had kept back from the sacrifice, to give that to the priest as payment. Verse 16, And if the man said to him, Let, let him, them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Now imagine this, okay? Imagine you come to church one Sunday morning and we say it's time for the offering, like just like we did a few moments ago. And, and, the, and the usher comes along and you say, I don't have any money to put in the offering this week. And, and, and the ushers come along and, you, and, and, they, and, and you, they, they come along with the offering plate and they say, put some money in the offering. And you say, well, if you, listen, I don't have anything, but if you wait till next week, I'm going to have some money. I'll be able to put something in the offering next week. And, and they say, no, put it in now, or we're going to knock you down and beat it out of you. You know, offerings would go up, but attendance would go down in a hurry, I feel. 
But can you imagine that? But that's exactly what was happening. They, the high priest's sons, Phineas and, and, and Hophni, they had basically hired thugs to work as their assistants in the temple. So, so, the, so the people come and they're taking more offering than the people are willing to give. Verse 17. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now skip down to verse 22. Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So now, now listen, look at this. Not only are they extorting offerings from the people, not only are, are they stealing offerings out of the sacrifice, but now we see that they're also seducing or, or extorting sexual favors from the women who came to make sacrifices and to pray at the temple. So there's sexual immorality in addition to thievery going on here. Verse 23. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. Now, do you hear that? What that tells me is that Eli was perfectly aware of what's going on. He was not confused. He was not deceived. For I hear of all your evil dealings from all these people. Verse 24. No, my sons, it is no good that I hear the people of the Lord spreading what I hear it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading ab abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of the Father, for it was the will of God to put them to death. And then down to verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli. We don't know his name. It was just some prophet. And said to him, Thus says the Lord, that I indeed, indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh, that I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an, an ephod before me. I gave to, to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me? This is God speaking to Eli. God says, you honor your sons more than you honor me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that will, there will not be an old man in your house. In other words, there will be such a curse of violence on the house of Eli that from generation to generation, every male in the family will die at a young age. They'll never reach mature adulthood. Verse 32. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you that whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to, to, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this, and this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he will go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Now, friends, this is a tragic story. And this horrendous prophecy given by this unnamed prophet who came to Eli came to pass. 
If you remember the, the story, just as this prophecy foretold, the war with the Philistines was lost and thousands and thousands of Israelite soldiers were killed. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was captured for the first time and taken away by the Philistines and, and Phineas and Hophni were killed. And when Eli heard about, about all of this with, his, with this prophecy still deep in his heart, he fell backward off of a bench and had a cerebral hemorrhage and died. And his daughter-in-law went into premature labor and died giving birth to her child. And her last gasp, gasp of breath was used to name the child Ichabod, which means the glory of the Lord has departed, departed Israel. There's no glory left in Israel. But friends, here's what I want to say. This whole thing could have been avoided. The whole thing could have been avoided. But Eli the high priest honored his own sons higher than he honored God. The refusal to rebuke his sons, not just him, but the refusal to rebuke sons who are involved in horrendous evil, even though God may order us to do so, is a deadly, deadly poison. Eli wanted to pass the ministry that God had given to his sons. That may well have been, well, we know it was God's plan uh, at first, but his son's sins negated that plan. And God spoke to Eli plainly that that ministry was not to be handed on as a dynasty. You know, a while back I heard about a pastor in another state who invited a very famous, famous evangelist to, to come and preach at his church. And he was actually, this evangelist was such a big name that he was kind of amazed that the guy agreed to come. Well, between the time that he was invited and the time he arrived to preach, that famous evangelist's son got involved in a very disreputable situation. But the evangelist, the famous man, refused to chasten his son. He refused to deal with the situation publicly. And he just, it was just swept under the rug and covered over. And the ministry went on just as usual. And that pastor, he went out to the airport to meet the famous evangelist whom he had never met before. He had never laid eyes on him, never met in person. And when he met the evangelist and his entourage at the airport, they got into the car to head from the airport to the hotel where they were going to be staying. And introductions were made all around and the pastor started up the car. And as he backed the car up, I mean, this is a very, very short time after meeting him. As he barked, backed the car up out of the parking space, this world famous evangelist turned to him and put his hand on his arm. He said, do you think I'm doing the right thing about my son? He had never met the man before, yet he was asking, do you think I'm doing the right thing about my son? This thing was eating at him so deep down inside that he was looking for affirmation of his weakness from perfect strangers. May, may God give us fathers the resolve that we will never ever be found in a place where our sons or our daughters or our wives see that we choose False family loyalty above obedience to the holiness of God. We do know ourselves no favor if we do. We do our family no favor if we do. We do our, our the church no favor if we do. And we may well do the kingdom of God serious damage. Our children, dads, listen to me. Our children must know, I love you. I love you more than anything in the whole world. I would throw myself in front of a train for you. I would do anything in this world for you except one thing. Not to please you, not to profit you, not to bless you, not to protect you. Not for any reason will I ever deny God or sin against His holiness. They have to know that. It must be perfectly clear. And the whole debacle in Israeli history could have been avoided if Eli had said to his sons what they needed to hear. Instead, he gave them this 
sort of weak rebuttal. Well, why are you guys doing this? I'm just hearing terrible things about you. Y'all are just doing awful stuff. Why don't you just quit? I mean, he's acting like a silly old woman. He, he should have called him out in front of the temple and said, you're through. You're, you're through with the priesthood. You're adulterers. You're fornicators. You're liars. You're thieves. You're through. I, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. I love you with my whole heart, but I will not stand for this. He should have denied them the priestly office. And that may well have been more, the, the, the one thing that, 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 that could have brought about a different uh, uh, result. And more than one thing could have happened. It may well have been that if Eli had done that, it may have been that a, that a revival might have broken out in the nation instead of backsliding that took the place uh, uh, as a result of the ministry of Phineas and Hophni. Because listen, when, when the clergy in a country fall away from God, then the people of that nation will fall away from God as well. But it might well have been that, that they had been so spurred onto holiness by the example and the leadership of Eli that they may have turned themselves to God themselves. Secondly, Eli's own ministry might have known a fresh anointing from God instead of the curse and the judgment that God had received. And the third thing that might have happened, and this is the most important thing of all, Eli's sons might have been saved. His sons might have been saved. Listen to what the book of Proverbs says. Discipline your children, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to their death. Now, now parents, listen to me for a minute. I'm going to talk to you about what I believe, not, what, about, not about what I've experienced. I have two daughters. Uh, they've been around a while. One's turning 21 very soon. The other one's 17. But, uh, but what I'm saying to you, about to say to you, I believe to be true based on God's word, but I've never been faced with this. And I, and I don't know, I, I, in the natural, I don't know that I have the resolve, but I believe that God would help me. I believe that I would have the resolve. I don't want to, ever want to have to face it. I don't want to ever have to deal with it. I don't want to ever have to do this, but I know what's right in my heart. So what I'm telling you now, some of you are going to say, sit there and you're going to say, oh yeah, but that's easy for you to say. You, you haven't faced it. Well, I've already said that, so you don't have to say it, okay? I believe many parents not only neglect to chasten their children, but they will not allow God to chasten their children. They get between their child and their, or their children and God. Now, now listen to this. What God wants to, and this is going to sound strange to you, but I'm going to help you understand this. God wants to bring our children into a place of brokenness where He can deal with their lives, where God can crack them open personally, individually, and deal with their lives. Not, not a brokenness that, that in sin, but a, a brokenness in will. We are willful people, aren't we? And, and that's what the part of us that has to be broken before God. And in order to do that, sometimes God has to engineer circumstances or he at least has to allow that child of ours to maneuver themselves out onto the hard surfaces of difficult circumstances, which is going to be the anvil. And they get themselves out on the anvil. Then comes the hammer blow of God to break their will. That hammer blow is going to fall. Now listen, it's going to fall. What happens is that parents often do one of two things. Sometimes parents insinuate themselves between the children of God. In which case, now listen to me, the hammer blow will fall and the parent will take the blow. You will take the blow. 
There are parents right now that are being driven apart in their own marriage relationship because they are accepting the hammer blows that God intended not to punish them, but it was intended by God to crack their children and bring them to a place of brokenness where they would receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But they've gotten between them and God. They keep paying off debts. They keep paying off fines. They keep uh, paying off bail bonds. They keep doing everything they can to keep their children from receiving the hammer of blow of God, to keep their children from even receiving the natural consequences of their own actions. And now they find themselves in hundreds or even thousands of dollars of debt. They're in that place because they keep on absorbing the blows that were never intended for them. Now, now the other thing that, that sometimes happens is, now, now listen, uh, one thing is the parents get between the hammer blow and your, their children, but the other thing is that parents do is they often remove the anvil altogether and put a pillow in its place. You know, you put a pillow uh, where an anvil ought to be, and, and you, you can lay a walnut on a pillow and hit it with a hammer, and you're not going to break it. It just drives it down in the pillow. Eli gave his sons a pillow. He allowed his sons to remain in the ministry knowing that they were corrupt priests. If he had obeyed God, those boys would, would have been engineered out onto the hard surface of having to realize that they had lost their place of ministry. And, and, and that's not because God hated Phineas and Hophni. It's because God loved Phineas and Hophni. He wanted them to be saved. They, they might have been saved. They might have known the sanctifying reality of God. They might have been broken in the presence of God. More than, more than one man that I know has experienced the power of God while sitting out on the anvil. But it's very, very difficult to know the breaking power of God once you get the pillow where the anvil ought to be. But Eli refused and he rejected the anvil of God. Furthermore, he, he accepted the blow of God and he wound up punishing not only Phineas and Hapni, but, he, but Eli himself, his family, and his nation. It is a, hear this, it is a false loyalty and a superficial judgment. It's a superficial love to shield those we love from the hammer blows that are intended to break them open for God's grace. And I know this sounds hard, but listen, Grace, you know, we think of grace as some soft, cushy thing, but sometimes God's grace is severe. Sometimes God's grace is me getting caught and exposed because it keeps me from going down the road that I'm, that I'm heading toward disaster. Sometimes, and this is the hardest thing of all, sometimes you must be absolutely impervious to the tears and the begging and the pleading. Now, I'm going to say something to you about God that I believe with my whole heart. It also may shock some of the people in this place. But I believe that God is so determined to do good in us that He is not very much altered in His plan by our tears. Yes, He is moved with compassion by our tears. But I also believe that He has such a great desire to do something good and accomplish something in us that He's willing for us to suffer tears in order for Him to accomplish it. You know, I, I learned something about who God is for my parents. I love my parents dearly. My par parents were wonderful, but they certainly had their faults. Every human does, and, uh, but, but they were like God in at least one way that I know of for sure. What, and that was this. Once my parents spoke something, it was as if the law had been carved into stone. Any, anybody have, here have parents that were like that? You know what I'm talking about? And I mean, once something was ever said, it was done. For example, I'll give you a, uh, an example We'd be in church on a Sunday or Wednesday or back, you know, when I was growing up, any, any day the church was open, we were there. 
And, and, and so we're in church, and if I started acting up near service, I usually got one, maybe two warnings, hey, calm down or whatever. But then, uh, but eventually, if I kept acting up, my mom or my dad, usually, usually it was my mom. My dad was usually on the other side of my mom, so she was closer to us. But my mom would, would lean over and she'd either whisper something in my ear or she write it on a piece of paper. Or, or if, you've been, if you're a church kid, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about here. Or my mom would snap her fingers. You know what I'm talking about? And everybody knew exactly what your mom's finger snap sounded like, right? You know what I'm talking about? And, and she would snap her fingers and that, that snap gave this, and she would give this bone chilling glare that only moms have, you know? That, and, and what she was saying, that look and that snap of the finger meant one thing and one thing alone. It meant this. I'm going to spank you when we get home. Yes. That's all it meant. And, 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 and they didn't, and they, they didn't mean, or here's one of my favorite. They'd lean over and say, you know, they'd be smiling like, like it's like everything is happy in church. They'd be smiling and lean over and say, you're going to get it when we get home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know what? That didn't mean anything good. That wasn't like ice cream. <laughs> no, no. Uh, and when they said that, it was like it was carved in Mount Rushmore. And, and, and I don't know about you, but on the way home at night, we'd be driving in our car all the way, on the way back home. And I'd be in the back seat. And I'm trying to avoid it, so I would pretend to fall asleep. Any others? We got some other fake sleepers here. Yeah, I mean, this is, you, this is a natural defense mechanism. This is what you do. You t- pretend to be asleep and let my body go limp. And, and sometimes God would be merciful and actually would fall asleep. And, but I, I could, I'd feel my dad's big, strong arms picking me up and carrying me into the house. And I would just hope against hope that he would just take me straight into my room and lay me down. I would just hope against hope that maybe they forgot about their promise. And it, instead, if, if I was really asleep, they would, he would gently shake my shoulders and wake me up and say, David, David, wake up. We're home. It sounds so good. It's like, oh, oh, I'm so ready for bed. And my parents say, oh, no, no, no. First, you have to get your spanking. You know, or, or worse yet, I don't know if your parents ever did this. This is cruel. Now, frankly, this is cruel and unusual punishment. My parents would play dumb the whole time. Everything would be normal till we get home. And then just about the time we're ready to head to bed, they'd look at me and say, you thought we forgot, didn't you? <laughs> it's like, oh, man, you give me false hope and then you, you, you strike me down. It's cruel. I tell you, listen, I'm absolutely certain that a tornado could have blotted out the city the, the, an earthquake could have struck our, our house uh, or uh, hit the and the ground could have opened up a forest and lightning could have struck our house and burned it down but my mom and dad would have found a way to say it's time for your spanking and they would have gotten it they would have gotten it in sometime that night i'm convinced of that and, and listen in response i would weep and cry and groan and moan Oh, please, I'm so sorry. I won't ever do it again, please. And the tears would be flowing, but my parents were not swayed. And it wasn't that my parents were heartless. Because now I know as a, as a dad, I know in those moments that it's much harder in those moments to follow through with the discipline. So they weren't heartless. They were heartbroken that they had to do it, but it was that they were so determined that the greater good get done, got done that they refuse to yield to my tears. And that is a very godlike thing. Let me show you why this works. God forbid, but 
Just suppose there's a soldier who steps on a landmine and his, his leg is just mangled. And they rush him to a field hospital, a mass unit, and they get him there and, and, and they say, all right, son, the doctor says, if, if we're going to save your life, we're going to have to take your leg off. But then they say, but the only thing is that we're completely out of any kind of morphine or any kind of painkiller. We have no anesthesia whatsoever, but we're going to have to take your leg off. So they start doing it the old-timey way. They give him a, a block of wood to put in his mouth or a bullet to bite or whatever it is. They say, bite down on this, and they, they hold him down, and, and, and they begin the amputation. And when that saw begins to bite into his leg, you, you know what that soldier is going to scream? He's going to say, scream, stop it! Just let me die. Just let me die. Get away from me. You're killing me. You're killing me. He may get tears in his eyes and they may stream down his face and beg for that surgeon to quit. But if that surgeon really cares for that boy, he's going to keep sawing. That boy may curse him. I hate you. I hate you for what you're doing to me. But if that surgeon cares for him, he will run the risk of his hatred rather than abandon him to his own bad judgment. People that are hurting and in pain are the least capable of good judgment. That's why you never make a decision when you're hurting. You never make a decision when you're under great stress because you, you're not in a place where you're capable of good judgment. So sometimes there's no substitute for the hammer and the anvil. Sometimes there's no substitute for going through that difficult time that sometimes we've even brought on ourselves for God to, to, to deal with us. And, and if you give in to tears, oh, daddy, 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 just pay it one more time. Just bail me out one more time. Sometimes you just have to say no. I love you more than anything, more than anything in the whole world. I love you so much, in fact, that the answer is no. I believe this with a whole heart. If Eli had stood fast, his boys might have been saved, his nation might have been saved, and his own ministry might have been saved. As it was, he honored his sons above God, which is false loyalty, and he lost all three. Now, the second is this. It's about King David. Second Samuel, Samuel, Second Samuel 13. Uh, let, me, let me just give you the context. David, of course, because he had multiple wives, had sons and daughters that were half-brothers and half-sisters to each other. So one of his sons was named Amnon, and Amnon lusted for his half-sister, who whose name was Tamar. So she, they had different mothers, but they were both David's children. And Tamar was the full sister of another one of David's sons named Absalom. So you have Absalom and Amnon and Tamar, which they're half-brothers, half-sisters. And then you have Absalom and Tamar, who are full brother and sister. Well, Amnon, he... he pretends to be very, very ill, and he summons his half-sister, Tamar, to come and nurse him, and he pretends that he's so sick that he can't even eat, and the only thing that could possibly make him well would be if his beautiful half-sister would come and put the food in his mouth personally. I mean, what a line. You, you, you read that and you want to say, did that, ever, did that ever work for you, Amnon? But uh, David, it, it, she doesn't want to do it, but David orders her to go, and, and so while she's there doing this, Amnon rapes his half-sister. And that's where we're going to pick up the story, 2 Samuel 13, 21. When King David heard, heard all this, he was furious. Should have been. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, neither, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Two years later, when Absalom's 
sheep shearers were at Baal Hazor, near the border of Ephraim. He invited all the king's sons to come there. Absalom went to the king and said, Your servant has had shearers come. Will the king and his attendants please join me? No, my son, the king replied, all of us should not go. We would only be a burden to you. There's so many sons and daughters because he had all these wives. And so he said, you, you can't, this would be a burden. This, you can't afford this. But, but, and although Absalom urged him, he still refused to go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon come with us. And the king asked him, why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he sent with him Amnon and the rest of the king's sons. Absalom ordered his men, listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Be strong and be brave. So Absalom, Absalom's men did, what, did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules, and fled. They thought he was going to wipe all of them out because he was going to make sure he was the heir to the throne. But that wasn't his goal. He was there to kill Amnon in revenge. What a horrible, horrible picture of a family in absolute disintegration. Confusion, lust, anger, revenge, murder, and incestuous rape. And here's what I want to say to you. The cause of all this here, the cause of the whole thing, is David. This falls at David's door. I, I love David. I admire David. I, I really believe he's a, man's after, a man after God's own heart. He's one of my favorite Bible characters. And uh, he was a great general. He was a mighty king. He was a poet warrior. He was a magnificent musician. He was a great politician. He was a lover, but David was a rotten dad. And because David abdicated his position of leadership and refused to execute righteous judgment between his sons, he received a reward, which was revenge and murder. Dads, listen to me. Do what's right. Do what's right. Don't play favorites. Uh, I, listen, I don't understand the, the entire situation here. I don't know all that was in this, but I do believe I, I understand one thing. Why didn't David punish Amnon? His punishment was just he was angry. Why didn't David punish it? I mean, listen, if, there was, if it was any other family in all of Israel that came to David and said, hey, this half-brother has, has raped his half-sister and we want to press charges against him. We're asking for a judgment from the king on this. David would have punished him according to the law of Moses and would have had him stoned to death if it had been any other, any other child in all of Israel. But David refused to punish Amnon. Why? I don't know all the reason. But I believe this, at least in part, deep in David's heart, it must have been that Amnon was more important to him than Tamar. Why would you not punish him for what he did to her? Because for some reason you value him more than you value her. God forbid. Dads, especially those that have both sons and daughters, if you play favorites with your sons, I'm here to tell you, you will reap a reward of havoc in your daughter's lives. A preacher was preaching at a college some years ago, and he gave an invitation, and one young girl came to the altar, and the wife of the president of the college 
knelt down beside the girl and they prayed together for a long, long time. And the girl was just almost hysterical in her weeping. Finally, the college president's wife came to the preacher and said, said, you know, I'm just not making any headway with this girl at all. Would you, would you come, please come and pray with us? So he came over and he knelt down beside the girl and put his hand on her shoulder and began to pray. And as he began to pray, he saw something in his mind so clearly. And I, I don't know what you want to call this. I don't know if you want to call it a word of knowledge or a vision or whatever, but he saw a scene in his mind that was so clear and so unbidden that he felt it was from God. So he shared it with the girl. He said, young lady, before I, before I say one more word to you, I want to tell you what I'm seeing in my mind as I kneel down here, and you tell me if this means anything to you. He said, I'm seeing a young girl of about 10 or 11 years of age. She's got on tennis shoes and white socks and a pair of blue shorts and a t-shirt. She's on a sun-baked empty ball field. She's standing between second and third base. And I see a man at home plate and he's hitting balls out to her at shortstop. And I, he said, I can hear the man yelling, keep your head down, cock your arm when you throw, you're throwing like a girl. That girl heard that and curled up her little fist against her chest and, and she just put her head back and howled. She said, I hate you. I hate you. She said, I am a girl. And she fell in the arms of the wife of the college president. And she said, I'm a practicing lesbian and I need deliverance. She said, I want to be a girl. I can't be daddy's boy anymore. Can't our little girls know that we love them and that we're going to ex execute judgment for them? Can't our children know that none of our other children are favored over the others? In fact, every child ought to, ought to be our favorite. You know, when we were growing up, we all thought we were mom's favorite. You know, it was a wonderful thing that they told us all that. Now, the truth is, we all knew it was my sister who was the only girl. She, was, she really was the favorite. I still hold to that, and I don't think she would deny that. But, uh, but uh, you know, I, I, and, and she deserved it too, frankly. She was the easiest one of all of us. Um, never caused my parents any grief that I'm aware of. But listen, I, I don't know what da damage was done in the life of Tamar. But we do know that it tells us that, that Tamar lived as a widow in her brother's house, in Absalom's house, until she died. Disgraced the rest of her life. Her life was absolutely shattered by this experience. And I don't know all that happened in Absalom's life, but we do know that the seed of rebellion was planted in him because he resented his father for not doing anything about Amnon. And that's what led to this place of horrible uh, rage and, and this thirst for revenge that was planted in, and led him to, to, to a place, uh, planted that seed of rebellion that led to this horrible havoc in, in the life of David and the nation of Israel. But David said to himself, I love Amnon so much, I can't allow him to be punished. If David had been willing to take the reins of leadership and, and allow Amnon to be punished in some way, then maybe the whole incident could have been avoided. But instead, David's inability to act as the priest and leader of his home engendered bitterness and resentment in his children and later was the cause of a na nationwide civil war that resulted in the deaths of thousands. Finally, it ended up with Amnon murdered and Absalom, Absalom hanging by a tree from his hair. And Ta Tamar's life was shattered. And he said, oh, I can't afford to lose Amnon. But if David had acted with integrity in the life of Amnon, even if it meant that he had to die for what he did, maybe he could have saved Tamar and Absalom. Parents, I believe the Lord is speaking to us. The, 
These are very complicated days in, to be, uh, in order to be raising children, isn't it? I mean, these, this is a difficult, difficult age to raise kids. And I, I don't know that there are any cast iron rules in this thing, but, but what I do know is this. God says, do the right thing. Do what's right. And third, we're gonna, and we're going to close with this one. If you'll turn to the book of Judges, Judges 14. We're going to see a man named Manoah. Anybody know who Manoah was? Anybody remember? There you go, Samson's dad. We're going to be looking at, at Manoah. Manoah was a good man. He was a righteous man. He was a loving man. He was an obedient man. He was yielded to God in many, many ways. But Noah, excuse me, not Noah, Manoah was an indulgent father. Look at Judges 14.1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. All right. No conversation. He just saw her. All right. Verse 3, But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Now remember, Samson was dedicated to the Lord before he was birthed by what was called a, a Nazarite vow. And, and he was not supposed to have a woman at all during this time. Secondly, we also know it's against the law of Israel, against the law of God for him to marry this woman because she's a Philistine and a, a, a Gentile of the worst order. And Manoah says to him, listen, isn't there a single Jewish girl in the whole land of Israel that you can marry? You have to marry this Philistine? Look at what he says. But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. <laughs> he says, get her for me. She's pretty. That's what he says. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Verse 5, then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. All right, listen to this. God's, God's going to use this incident as he uses incidences over and over again in the life of Samson. The life and ministry of Samson is extremely complicated to cover because, or to study because it's not just like A, B, C, D. It's complicated. God uses Samson even in his worst defeats. E even the death of Samson is complicated to understand. But, but Samson's entire life and ministry can be summarized not in terms of what he accomplished, but in terms of what, might ha he, what he might have accomplished if he lived up to, God, to the commands of God. Samson is a classic case of a might-have-been who never realized his full potential in the kingdom because he couldn't get control of his appetites. What entangled Samson over and over again was his appetite for women. And here is the first example of the place where I believe that appetite might have been brought under control if his father, Manoah, had used some authority. If he had said to him, now listen here, I'm not going to do it. But look, I mean, Samson acts like a baby in this story. He, he makes no reasonable argument. He doesn't say, uh, well, I love her. He doesn't say, she's wonderful. She has a great personality. You love her. You, I'm sure you'd love her. He doesn't say anything about her because he's never even talked with her. He doesn't know anything about her. He just says, get her for me, get her for me, get her for me. She's really pretty. I got to have her. She's pretty. Listen, 
what parents, one of the greatest things that we can teach our children is delayed gratification. And again, I'm teaching what I believe the Bible teaches, what I believe to be right. And I'm not telling you that I always live up to this or that I always will, but I, I, I believe this is right. I believe that there are times when we have the means to give things to our children and we are wrong to give it to them. I believe that there are times when it is an act of Christ-like love to withhold from our own children. And to, uh, 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 there, there's something, uh, uh, there, there are times when it's profound love to keep something from our kids. You know, uh, when, when they want something and you tell them, no, I'm not going to buy that for you if you want it. You need to earn the money. I do harm if I indulge them with everything they want. But if I can say no to them, I may be doing something good. And part of it comes, listen, you, you know, your parents sacrificed in order for you to have, many of you to have what you have. But, and now it's natural that we want to sacrifice for our children uh, so that they may have things. And that's all good. Uh, to, to a certain point, but I also really believe in my, with my whole heart that our children have an inalienable right to their own poverty that I can't just give them everything and indulge them and hope that everything will go well with them because there are lessons learned through hardship that will never be learned in times of ease. I really believe that there are times when we should withhold our hand and say, if you make, if you make this decision, you're going to have to live with it. If you make this decision, I will not assist you with this and I believe this with my whole heart. I know of a boy who was going to a private Christian school and he, he got into so much trouble in that school that he was suspended. And he went to his dad and he said, I have to go to the school board and, and I have to make an appeal to the school board to get back into the school. And his father looked at him after all of this time and all this trouble he'd be getting into consistently over and over again. And he looked at his son and, and he said, I'm not going to help you. I've been paying all these years for you, go, for you to go to a private Christian school. I believe it's God's best and it's God's highest for you to go to a Christian school, but I'm not going to continue to pay for you to misbehave at a Christian school. Well, suddenly the tables were turned and the boy was like, well, I want to go to the school. I, I really do. I really want to go to school there. And the father said, well, you know, son, I've seen absolutely nothing that makes me think you do. And the boy said, I promise you I want to go to school. And the father said, well, you had a job last summer. You have some money in the bank. If you want to go to a Christian school, then you pay the tuition. Well, the last quarter of that school year at that Christian school, that boy paid his own tuition. And there, listen, here's the thing, though. What you don't see is that there were nights when that father wept and he cried and he said, oh, God, I hope I've done the right thing. I hope I've done the right thing. It's a terrible risk. It's a terrible gamble. What if that boy says, I'm not going to pay it, and he goes to public school, and he gets involved with a bad group and falls into sin and goes off into the world, and, and, you, and you say to yourself in that moment, maybe I should have paid one more quarter. Maybe I should have done it. That's what Manoah was saying to himself here. I, 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 if I don't get him this girl, maybe he's just going to run away from home and take, get her anyway. He might elope with her. He might run off. He might join the Philistines. Oh, I'll just get her, get her for him. Maybe that'll satisfy him. But it didn't satisfy him. Instead, what did it teach? When Manoah gave Samson what he wanted in spite of God's will, it taught Samson that if you kick up a big enough fuss, then you can get whatever you want and you can get it now. If Manoah had taken the reins of leadership as the priest of his home, 
Maybe, I don't know, but maybe Samson's life would have turned out differently. I don't care that Samson was an anointed man of God. I don't care that he had all of this great strength. I don't care that Samson had been set aside by God since his birth. On this one incident, Manoah should have said, no, absolutely not. I will not get her for you. I will not negotiate. I will not pay the dowry. The answer is no. He should have held the line and stood fast. That boy in that Christian school that I just told you about, when he paid his own tuition, listen to this, the quarter that he paid his own tuition, he didn't have to go to the office one time. Never got sent to the office once. You know, when your thing is, when you're paying your own tuition, it just isn't all that fun to mess around in school. You understand what I'm saying? How many of you remember when your parents were paying for your tires and it was fun to burn them off? You know, but when you're paying for your own, it changes everything, doesn't it? You start babying it. But, but you know what? It was a major turning point in that boy's life. That boy later came to the Lord in a dramatic and powerful way. But, but I believe that the anvil, the first point, was his father saying, no, go to public school or pay your own tuition, but I'll not help you another dime in this. But that father went into his room and closed the door. He had put on this big, tough front with his boy, but he went into his own room and threw himself across the bed and said, oh God, I don't know. I don't know if I've done the right thing or not. But, it, but it, was, it was saying no, absolutely not, that taught his son that delayed gratification and making the decision to do what's right is of extreme importance. Now let me conclude with this. Those, those are three. We're going to end now. But those are three negative examples. You say, what about a positive example? Can't we have a positive example? I have a positive example for you. Here's a father who has a great plan for his son, something wonderful that he's supposed to do, a, a destiny that he's supposed to fulfill, and his son knows it. He, he knows that his son is supposed to be a king. He knows that he's supposed to be the most important man of his generation. He knows that, so in, in order to prepare him, what does he do? He puts him in a tiny little village in the Middle East where he's raised up in poverty for 30 years. He learns to wait on the father. For 30 years, he waits for the preparation of the inner man, God shaping and molding, dealing with his inner man so that he grows not only in physical stature, but morally and spiritually and intellectually. He grows in every way until he's brought to the fullness of manhood, knowing his plan for him, knowing that his father could accelerate the plan and put him on the throne at the age of five, and he would still, even at that age, be the greatest king the world had ever seen. Still, the father waited, allowing him to be raised in poverty, in need, in oppression for 30 years before he ever announced in public, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. God raised his son, Jesus, slowly and carefully in, the pri in private until he brought him out on that, in that one public moment for the fulfillment of his destiny. Fathers, I know that being a dad in today's world is probably the greatest challenge any, any American male can face. See, we, we, we like being the dad that, you know, the sports dad where we do the fun stuff. But you know what? We have to take responsibility that, that God has given to us for discipline in the home, for leadership in the home. You've got to be in accordance. You've got to be in, this, in line with your, with your spouse. I understand that. But I believe that if we will seek to be godly men, raising our children in godly ways, 
God will give us the godly wisdom that we need in the moment when we need it. And here's what I want to say. None of this is going to be easy. None of it is going to be easy. Sometimes there's going to be a pain. There's going to be pain, real pain. But I believe that the godly way is always the best way in the long run. Always the best way. Would you bow your head? Father, as we come into your presence, we're so thankful, Lord, that we have a father like you that sets such a powerful example. And Lord, that there are times when you say to us, when we beg and plead for things and we say, oh God, I want this, I want this. You say, sometimes you tell us no, because you know that it's bad for us. Sometimes you say yes, and we're grateful for that. But sometimes you just say, no, you need to wait. You're not ready. God, I pray you teach us to deal with our own children in the same way. That we would be examples of godliness before them is not, not, not to be perfect. We know we can't be perfect. But God, that they would see that we are con consistently trying to do what's right. And that when we do fail, that we confess our sin before you and to them and we make things right. And God, I pray that you would help us to deal with our parents, with our children, Lord God, with firmness and with love, that they would learn that, God, that sometimes we go through hard times, but there's a purpose in that even, that you never waste a hurt. You, you never waste a hard time. But God, out on the anvil where it's not very comfortable, it's those places where you can crack open parts of our lives where we've been resistant, where we've been rebellious, and, and you can break our will in your presence. And as our will is broken, God, and we surrender to you, then you're able to do greater things than we ever dreamed. With heads bowed and eyes closed, and there's nobody looking around. Listen, I, I don't know what God may be saying to you. And, and listen, I, I want to say this as well. You, know, you, you may be a mom that's a single mom, God will give you grace. God will make up the difference of what's lacking. But you, you, can, you can make these same kind of choices and decisions. But you're here today and you'd say, Pastor, I, I, I'm a parent. I'm a, I'm a dad. I'm a mom. And I, I just recognize that sometimes I give in and I, I don't let God do what He wants to do. And I'm not being a very good teacher and I just want God to, to, to give me the strength, the fortitude to do what's right, even when, even when it's a hard choice. And if there's anybody here would say, Pastor, I just want you to pray for me. Pray for me that I'll be a better dad. Pray for me that I'll be a better mom. Just slip your hand up. I want to pray for you. Yeah, all over the room. Father, you see every hand. You see every heart. And God, while this is maybe not the message that people want to go out jumping up and down and shouting hallelujah, God, this is a message that can be life-changing for our children. If we as, as, the, as men and women of God take seriously your call for us to steward our children, to train our children the way they should go. Lord, I pray that in Jesus' name that you would just anoint us Fill us with strength. Give us wisdom. Give us the, the, the fortitude in our, in our innermost being, the, the power of your Spirit to do what needs to be done, even when it's uncomfortable.
And Lord, I pray that you would raise up our kids. Raise up this next generation, God, to do things that we've, we, we've never even dreamed of doing. God, that you would raise up our children to be men and women of God, men, men and women who will change the world, who, who will change the course of history, not just in this nation, but all over this world. And God, I pray you would help us to be disciplined moms and dads. And we would show our children, not just tell them the right way to go, but we would show them the right way to go. Help us to lead by our example. We pray all of it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.